more than five years after it was initially formed and with a little extra life injected into it by the state legislature, the Upstate Flood Mitigation Task Force is finally bearing some fruit as it produced a long-awaited report this summer that is the basis for new legislation. To discuss the report and the legislative response, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Assemblymember Al Sturpey, a Syracuse area Democrat who's been keeping this issue alive for a couple of years now. Welcome back to the show, Assemblymember. Thank you, Dave. It's good to be back. Well, it's good to talk to you about this again. Can you remind listeners why and when we got the Upstate Flood Mitigation Task Force? <laughs> yes, back in 2017, uh, there was a lot of flooding that took place, uh, I think, you know, not only along Lake Ontario, but the uh, Mohawk River Basin uh, and in a lot of other areas. It was just a year with a lot of rain and and we had a lot of flooding and a lot of complaining by businesses and homeowners. Uh, at the time, um, you know, we decided to put something together. It was Dave Valeski uh, at that point, and I put this legislation together. And they were supposed to, you know, constitute this task force. The governor was supposed to make a choice of a, a chair and then the leaders had, you know, a couple of choices each of people to put on it. But at the time that administration decided not to do anything instead, I think they just provided some funding in the budget and ran around and had press conferences, handing out checks to people and trying to make everybody happy. Um, but that went on and, and the task force was supposed to expire in 2022. And at the time, you know, I was, you know, still upset that it had never been formed, never held a meeting or anything. Um, so I went to John Mannion, who'd also experienced the same thing I did. Every time it, it rained really hard, and, and if you notice anything, it rains really hard nowadays. Uh, it's not like back in the 70s and 80s where we'd have nice rains. And his constituents were call and complain because their backyards were disappearing or their basements were flooding and I would get all the same calls and there really wasn't anything I could do about it because most of the issues dealt with local government and of course local governments were not coordinated in any type of flood mitigation so we decided we had to have more of a statewide effort and that's we decided to uh, extend uh, the flood mitigation task force we we smartened up a little bit from the previous time and we appointed the chair, Ryan Stratton from the New York State Canal Corporation. So he was our chair. We had some leadership. Um, the governor got to make a couple of picks. The Senate leader, the assembly leader got to make picks. And, you know, we had people from uh, DEC, um, transportation, all the commissioners, uh, you know, were all involved in this. And we also selected some hydrologists and other experts in the area and, and put them on. And we also, again, smartened up and said, we need to have a report done by July 1st of 2023. So that's the whole backdrop of what happened. Um, my eternal thanks to Brian Stratton, who did exactly what he was supposed to do. Uh, he made sure that all the meetings took place. We had a lot of public meetings. Uh, we got a lot of input from homeowners and business owners. And, you know, 
I think they recognize the fact that the task force actually listened to them because, you know, the initial proposals that came out, you know, changed over time. And the final report that came out really reflected a lot of the information they had gotten from the public. So, and we have a wonderful report. There's an executive summary and there's a more detailed report with recommendations of what to do and estimates of what the cost would be, which is always an important thing. Well, yeah, I want to get into the recommendations, but first, in terms of the scope of what your focus was here, is it fair to say that this isn't necessarily about the once every 100 years or once every 500 years floods that we hear about more and more, but more of focus on the kind of persistent annual flooding that we're seeing in central New York as well as the Mohawk Valley? Um, yes, I, I, I'd say that's true, although <laughs> I've got to tell you, um, between 1870 and 2000, we had two 100-year events. Between 2001 and 2017, we had seven 100-year events, and those are two inches or more of rain in a 24-hour period. So uh, both things you say are, are true. Um, and, you know, we focused on the Mohawk River Basin and the Oswego River Basins, which are two very different topographical uh, uh, systems because the Mohawk uh, system, which, you know, it's a little bit smaller. I think it's 3,100 square miles uh, that drain into it. And it goes from a high elevation to a low elevation there are very few, if any, bodies of water that that empty that it empties into. So when you have a rain event there, the high uh, speed water flows have nowhere to go to other than over the banks of the Mohawk. And that causes some severe flooding, but it happens very quickly. And then when the rain stops, it goes down very quickly. And the Oswego River Basin, which is, I don't know, 5,100 square miles um, that it covers, it has the Finger Lakes, it has Oneida Lake, it has Cross Lake, uh, and I think the canal empties into Lake Ontario. So it has lots of bodies of water that can accept, you know, water from uh, the Oswego River system, and it takes longer for flooding to happen there but it also takes a lot longer for floods to subside there. And those are the two different, uh, you know, areas that we looked at and the recommendations are different for each one of them. Well, let's talk about the recommendations, but first for listeners just joining us, let me reintroduce you. Uh, we're speaking with Assemblymember Al Sturpey, a Syracuse area Democrat who's been championing the work of the Upstate Flood Mitigation Task Force, which produced a report this summer, which lawmakers like the Assemblymember are using to drive a legislative response. I'm curious what, if anything, from the report really stands out to you, either in terms of an observation or a recommendation that they're making uh, that you think uh, is important to implement? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, there are, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here with um, physical things that can be done. But I think 
overall, there's two really big misconceptions by the public, I believe. <laughs> and there were misconceptions by a lot more than just the public. But first of all, in both of these river basins, there is no one uh, overarching organization that manages water flow. You know, it, there are, are in the Oswego River Basin, there are 10 or 12. There's power companies, there's municipalities, uh, the Canal Corporation. I, I think most people always thought the Canal Corporation controlled the flow of everything, but they don't. And in a lot of situations, you have multiple organizations with conflicting priorities that are in charge of what the water flow is. So the guys upstream who may be, you know, a power company like the uh, fast water coming down because it produces more electricity and they don't really care too much about what happens downstream. So one of the recommendations was to uh, form a, a council or committee uh, overseeing each one each for the Oswego River Basin and one for the Mohawk River Basin that can go ahead and make recommendations up and down the, the basin uh, when events are about to happen to help control, you know, um, uh, flows and relief valves and things like that. That's really one thing. Um, you know, the other thing they said was that the flood maps uh, have not been updated since the 1980s. And they wanted to do a comprehensive uh, remapping of all these basins and the floodplains because they have changed dramatically over that time period. So those to me are the two most important things. One, uh, the remapping gives you actual up-to-date information on flows, et cetera, and what's going to happen. Um, it can tell you, you know, they can actually measure when the water, you know, rain comes and water's flowing at a certain rate. They can tell you what's going to happen downstream if you don't do these things. And while the recommendation is not for an organization that mandates control of it. It is for somebody that can tell everybody uh, what the best course of action is going to be. You know, there, there's some of these um, things that, uh, first of all, when the canal was built, flood mitigation was not anywhere. I mean, they didn't plan for it because, you know, the rains back then were kind of normal. Uh, not like what's been happening due to climate change. So um, they didn't even have this on the radar. But, um, but putting all this information together and having someone uh, be able to communicate all this, I think will make a big difference. And after a quick break, we'll have more on the recent report from the Upstate Flood Mitigation Task Force with Assemblymember Al Sturpey, a Syracuse Democrat who's been keeping this issue alive for years now.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Our listeners just joining us, this is the Capitol Press Room, and we're continuing our conversation with Assemblymember Al Sturpey, a Syracuse Democrat, who's touching on the recommendations from the Upstate Flood Mitigation Task Force. Well, that idea of creating a, a centralized authority, as you mentioned, is that something that is easy to accomplish, or is there an expectation that, <laughs> you're really laughing, bringing different players together can be a challenge since everyone has their fiefdom and might have their own ways of doing things. Because as the report notes, there are reports that are being like generated and studies that are being generated right now that aren't even being shared amongst the agencies. And so one of the recommendations is to share some of this info. So how difficult is it to get across these silos that might exist? Well, uh, the good thing is there is some precedence for this. I believe the Black River has an authority that manages it, and I believe uh, the Hudson has has an authority uh, that manages it. So it's not like something that has never happened before. Um, I'm sure nothing is easy, and there'll be some pushback. But again, not mandating it, but trying to just make sure that there's someone who can tell everybody what the results are going to be if we don't do these things or that. You know, some of the other recommendations are uh, to buy some of the disconnected formal floodplains. And there's 1,200 acres uh, between the Montezuma Wildlife Preserve and some DEC land that has been used for agriculture for, I don't know, maybe 80 or or so years that they would desperately love to buy. Now, the value of the farmland has been reduced significantly because it's been farmed for such a long time. Uh, The nutrient value is not that great. So uh, we're hoping that we can do that. And what that allows to happen is, um, I believe it's at that point, it's like the Seneca River or the Clyde River, and they'd be able to let those areas flood and that would relieve some of the pressure downstream. There are things like uh, movable dams. There were some recommendations to update some of the dams and, and change some of the criteria which raise and lower things because right now it takes 72 hours uh, in order for notification to be given to everybody in the basement, hey, basin, hey, we're going to do this thing. So you have to wait 24 hours to make sure everybody's notified. Then it takes 48 hours uh, to actually do this thing. And sometimes that's just not fast enough, especially in the Mohawk River Basin. So uh, we're talking about, you know, cutting that in half at least or, or faster and being able to enable some of these uh, new techniques. And and there's, there's other things. I mean, another big thing is because of the more current mapping, we can go ahead and um, do things like uh, better land use planning, building codes, um, and trying to get people not to build in floodplains, which is 
an easy thing to talk about, sometimes not an easy thing to do. And also uh, there are recommendations for uh, buying a lot of pieces of property that are in floodplains now and getting people to move to other areas. So lots of different recommendations here. You, you just brought up one that I think is an important one, but obviously a challenge, which is this idea of curbing some of the development in flood prone areas. Does it seem like municipalities have any interest in slowing the growth of what would otherwise be really desirable property for the uh, 11 months of the year when it's not flooding? Or does it seem like this is an area where the state might need to intervene? Because if it doesn't, the state at the end of the day could be on the hook for flood recovery funds. That's, you know, that's true. I I think one of the things that would happen uh, after updating the flood mapping in the Mohawk River Basin, I believe that there would be a bunch of properties that are currently listed in a floodplain and require uh, flood insurance that would be taken out. But I believe there are lots of properties in the Oswego River Basin, which are not listed in a floodplain, would all of a sudden appear in a floodplain and now require flood insurance, which will be fairly expensive. Um, That combination with a fund to purchase properties that are in existing floodplains might give homeowners and business owners incentives um, to sell their properties and move them move to somewhere else. Our municipalities, I, I, I don't know if municipalities have an incentive to do it. Um, you know, some of the other things that are in the recommendation, you know, we're talking about over a period of 10 to 20 years when municipalities are building any development to upsize all sorts of infrastructure, you know, uh, culverts and retention ponds and things like that to accommodate the type of rain events that occur now, as opposed to what used to happen 50 or hundred years ago. So, and, and all the existing infrastructure, as you go through periods of maintenance, where you have to update things to make sure, um, that the codes are such that it does also uh, increase the size of all this infrastructure to handle uh, the type of events we're, we're experiencing now. So, you know, I think if there's enough coordination and enough information that is given to everybody in both of these basins, I think people will start to realize that the best course um, is what has come out in the recommendations in this report. Because there's gonna be a time when if you are stubborn and you wanna stay in a floodplain and it floods and it destroys your property, that somebody's not gonna come in here and pay for it. And you're gonna be stuck with it. So that those things all together, I think uh, over the next couple of years uh, will help people make decisions that are in their own best self-interest. Well, for those homeowners who might now find themselves living in a floodplain, if there is new mapping done, who do you envision being the potential buyer for those homes if those people do want to get out? Because probably smartly, the state legislature approved legislation earlier this year that would 
uh, require more disclosure about the risk of flooding when selling properties. So do you think this would be something where the state or federal government might have to come in and buy these properties if people are looking to, to move out? Yes. Um, they're talking in the report about um, a state fund, you know, that will be used in order to purchase these properties. And I can't remember the exact amount. It's a few million dollars a year that would be in the, the budget. Um, yeah, I think they were looking at a initial seed funding of like $2 million or something like that. Yeah, it might be more than that. But you got to understand there are several sources of funding to implement a lot of these recommendations. There's the $4.2 billion Environmental Bond Act which has lots of money in it for things like this, for water and, and sewers and everything. There's the Inflation Reduction Act and the um, Infrastructure uh, Act from the federal government, which also provides money for things like this. So, you know, I think making the plan now, having recommendations ready to go and present, and when you go and apply to uh, any of these funds for it is going to give us an advantage at getting money that we need uh, to to make this program we've put together actually work. So I'm I'm pretty confident that there'll be enough resources to implement the vast majority of the stuff we've put in here in this report. And you know I think that's going to make it you know many many times. Uh, more likely that we're going to be successful. Well, finally, given that there is a price tag with a lot of what we're talking about here, do you envision the legislation that you and Senator Mannion are pushing will be part of the budget context, or do you think that they should be done as standalone bills? I think it needs to be in the budget. We've already, they've already had discussions with the executive branch um, who you know, received the report and received a review of the report. Um, so they're aware of it and, you know, they have already spoken about, um, you know, building that into next year's budget. So I, I don't know how much, you know, will come out uh, directly from the state. Um, I'm sure they'll be looking at the other federal programs that are available to try to coordinate and see, uh, where they need to fill in. Um, but I think we will, you know, we'll have the advantage of having it already, uh, some of it already included in the budget. And that makes it, um, you know, 10 times easier to get things like this passed. And whether we have to negotiate the number up a little bit, that's, you know, that's easier to do when you start with it in the budget than when it's not in the budget. Well, we've been speaking with Assemblymember Al Sturpey. He is a Syracuse Democrat. Assemblymember, thank you so much for making the time and congrats on finally getting this report. <laughs> thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. 
More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.